do you think when you think, oh, the foxes are getting cuter? <laughs> How can they get any cuter? You are listening to Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to tell all your friends about the Urban Wildlife Podcast and make sure they listen to it also and give us great ratings on your podcast listening app of choice. We are part of the Wildlife Observer Network, so please check out all of our Wildlife Observer Network sibling podcasts and feel free to get in touch with us by email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Again, urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. And feel free to tweet at us at herbwildlifecast. I'm going to start off by saying quickly, this is Billy Brown, one of your regular co-hosts of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. We should say, Tony, uh, in the time since the last podcast episode, Angie, his wife, had a baby, Azalea, so we wish them the best. and you know, all the great sleepless cocooning time that they're doing right now. Um, and I am joined by uh, two guests who arguably could be called foxes themselves, if you were looking at them. Um, we got, we got, and they laugh at my jokes, which is great. Um, we've got, uh, we'll start with Christian. Christian, who are you and what do you do? I am a uh, professor of political science at Drexel University and uh, I'm an environmental political theorist by training, and a lot of my recent work has been in a field called human-animal studies, which sort of um, engages questions of coexistence between species in many different places, in, in laboratories and zoos and backyards and cities. Um, and so a lot of my work is about how people and wild animals make sense of each other in urban contexts. Perfect. This is why we should have you on every episode. Um, and then we've got Kate. Kate, who are you and what do you do? I am Kate Garchinsky. I am an illustrator. Um, right now, I specialize in narrative nonfiction picture books for kids. And my first book was The Secret Life of the Red Fox, written by Lawrence Pringle. Uh, it is, <laughs> there you go. It is, I think that one's like his 127th book. So he's a veteran, <laughs> and this is my first book. Um, yeah. But I've done. I've gone on to do a few more books, and which actually have a theme of things that you see as roadkills, what I like to call them. You've got skunks, bats. I guess you don't see them as roadkill, but um, yeah, there's like a backyard bird kind of theme. All right, because I've got a lovely osprey book of yours also, which oh, yeah, I've never seen those as roadkill. So there you go. You've got all kinds of well, flattened fauna there. Yeah. Different author. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> all right, never mind that guy. Um, okay, then, <laughs> no, he's actually also a friend of the podcast, so we've got to be, be cool to the Osprey author, um, Robert. Or, uh, and, yeah, Rob. yeah, no, we've had him on talking about Osprey before, and, and actually, no, actually about barred owls as well. I wanted, I've been wanting for a while to do an episode about red foxes. Partly it's because, as listeners of this podcast might actually know, I'm really into questions of biogeography, and I'm also interested in questions of, we'll call it evolution of animals that have become urban residents under urban selection pressures. And so this episode's got all of that. 
Um, and before I jumped in, I wanted to talk a little bit for few people who might live in cities that don't have foxes or just haven't noticed them. I'll start off with one fox observation, then I'm going to toss it to you guys to, to hear what you guys think about and what, what you've seen in terms of foxes in cities. Um, I, I didn't actually see this particular fox, but there was an article and I looked it up. It was in a, an online publication for Philadelphia, I think called Billy Penn, and it was an observation from a few years ago that someone posted on Instagram on April 6, 2015, of a red fox with a dead Canada goose like, and the fox is in full defensive posture, ears back, snarling. Um, and my understanding from other people who had seen this, pictures of this and seen, seen the scene, it was sort of defending a, a dead Canada goose against feral cats at um, the, near the Walmart in South Philadelphia on Thomas Boulevard. Um, so that for me was like, this is, this is truly an urban animal living in the city, killing a, a you know, sort of feral urban goose in some senses. Um, at a cat colony on an old industrial pier next to a shopping center. Kate, do you ever see foxes in, in urban areas or have you? I have. Of course, when I was working on the book, I didn't see any when I needed to see them. But I've seen, um, we were birding at, um, let's see, we were at John Hines. Brian and I, it was one of our first like daytime dates. And I took him to John Hines and he had never birded before. And it was getting to be like dusk or right after dusk or sunset. And we were walking the trail trying to get out of there before it got too dark. And suddenly, like we were just like watching a robin on the ground. And suddenly out of nowhere, two foxes come right through, crossing our path, one chasing the other. We're like, whoa, that's really exciting. And maybe a good omen for our relationship. I don't know. Turns out um, it was. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I've also seen one at FDR Park um, that was looking really, really beat up. Up. He could have been hit by a car at some point. He had mange. His tail right. was like broken off. And he, yeah, it was really sad. Um, those are my urban fox experiences. All right. Christian, you are, and I think in Christian's introduction of himself, I always like to point out Christian is also an incredible wildlife photographer who does a lot of photo photography at Heinz and other spots. Um, but, and your observation doesn't have to follow that, Christian. I just had to say it. Um, so, okay. what are some. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the shout out. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I uh, shoot foxes at the Heinz um, all the time. Um, they are remarkably wary there, which is interesting. Um, they're not particularly relaxed around people, um, as you would sort of expect, or, or as, you know, sort of the case in other cities where foxes are common. I also see them in my, in my neighborhood um, around Brewery Town. Um, there's oh. a... a, a a railway right-of-way sort of on the edge of the neighborhood in Fairmont Park. Um, and when you go out, um, you know, after dark or before dawn, um, seeing foxes is uh, fairly common. And then perhaps the most famous um, Philadelphia fox, this would have been about three years ago, um, there was a den at the, at the Barnes Foundation Museum on the parkway. Oh, really? Um, Somehow I didn't know that. Okay. That, uh, Based our puppies there, yeah. Wow. I mean, it doesn't get much more center of Philadelphia than that. Okay. Yeah. So they're all over the city, as far as we can tell. Um, they're also famously urban fauna in European cities. I know in English, in, in the UK, I, I, I get my impression of them is that they're kind of like the raccoons of, of England. 
where they're the, the meso predator kind of animal that you'll find raiding the trash at night. I thought I had this in the podcast. I can't remember. We had a, 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 a long story, a guy who was from Berlin staying at our house, renting a room for a while. Um, he was a scholar and, and studying at an institute in Philadelphia. Um, and he was telling me stories. I recorded some. And I thought I put them in the podcast. I couldn't find them. But of in Berlin, like late at night, riding his bike home from a club or something like that, and coming across like a fox eating like someone's dropped like kebab um, and just sort of had that as like a, an iconic fox encounter in Berlin. Yeah, I've sort of asked myself this question. I think because raccoons have sort of occupied those niches pretty effectively in most U.S. cities, um, I think, you know, I tried to track this down a while ago, and as far as anyone knows, the first sort of urban raccoons were sited in Cincinnati, of all places, in the 1920s. Um, that seems oh. to have been the, the epicenter of raccoon urbanization in the U.S. Um, and so, to some extent, I think they, they sort of, because they preceded foxes and have sort of taken up the spaces, um, I've always wondered um, whether that is part of the reason why foxes haven't taken over urban spaces to the same extent that we uh, we know they have in Berlin or London or Birmingham or other cities like that, um, huh. where, yeah, they, they, they seem to be sort of um, what we associate here with urban raccoons. The, the trash pandas of Europe. Yeah. Um. Well, also in the UK, because all the other mesopredators are gone, right? I mean, there, you know, there are no, no lynx, there are no wolves, there are no, you know, they sort of effectively killed off everything else. So foxes <laughs> it is. <laughs> you're, you're anticipating a topic in a few minutes. Um, so uh, I'll use that as, as, I don't know, not exactly a smooth segue, but it'll work in a few minutes. Um, so one of the things I find interesting about foxes, and this is something that I learned when I was actually having a drink with Tony at his house years ago. Um, and I can't remember who else was, I think Matt Halley or something like that. Um, and they were talking about the, the documented range expansion of fox in, of red foxes in the United States. Um, and I just sort of always assumed I'd lived in Baltimore and seen foxes there. I've been in Philadelphia and seen them here that they were, always here. Um, and it turns out when you look at sources from this, from, uh, you know, 150 years ago or so, um, that or longer ago that, that the folks then talked about observing their expansion. And so, um, Kate, are you in a, in, in a position to read from, uh, Audubon and Bachman's viviparous quadrupeds of North America? I am. All right. I have it queued up here. So this is from 1854. And so this is for the, let's call it the perspective of naturalists who are around to observe some of this expansion. Go ahead. Yes. So it says red foxes have gradually migrated from the northern to the southern states. This change of habitation may possibly be owing to the more extensive cultivation to which we have alluded on page 265, which I read, and it's all about... Um, the improvement of land as people have been settling and bringing in their, their livestock and their more tame turkeys and whatnot. Um, so we have alluded as a reason for the species having become more numerous than this is, it was before the revolution. This idea, however, would seem to be overthrown by the continued abundance of gray foxes in the Eastern states. Not so much anymore. 
In the early history of our country, the red fox was unknown south of Pennsylvania, that state being its southern limit. In process of time, it was found in the mountains of Virginia, where it has now become more abundant than the gray fox. A few years afterwards, it appeared in the more elevated portions of North Carolina, then in the mountains of South Carolina, and finally in Georgia, where we have recently observed it. Awesome. Um, and so the, in a way, like right there, Audubon and Bachman are putting out um, basically a, a, a hypothesis of, of why foxes ended up where they were. And, and other, other guess, I guess the other big guess um, was that maybe the foxes that were appearing outside of what their earlier range had been were um, European foxes brought over for hunting. Um, and so uh, I found a paper that was published in 2012 from the Journal of Mammalogy, um, and it's called the, or the, quote, the Origin of Recently Established Red Fox Populations in the United States, colon, Translocations or Natural Range Expansions, um, by, uh, let's see, they do all the authors, Mark Statham, Benjamin Sachs, Keith Aubrey, John Perrine, and Samantha Wisely. Um, and so... The study basically compared um, red fox populations in the United States with populations from Eurasia, looking at them across the range of North America. Um, and, you know, through the wonders of modern genetic analysis, they were finding that the ones in the mid-Atlantic, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and the southeast of North America um, were related to the ones to the north from like the, the quote, original range in the northeast of the United States. Um, and then out west, they found that uh, other areas that they expanded south into, out west, they were a mix of foxes from the northern parts of the west, as well as fox lineages from eastern North America, presumably that escaped from fur farms. So, um, so the reason I like talking about this, beyond I just I think it's cool, um, is that uh, a particularly hot urban wildlife topic these days, and one that Christian's written a good bit about, um, are urban coyote um, that, uh, that have kind of done the same thing. So I was going to kick it over to Christian and talk a little bit about this, because this is, I think, of one of your topics. It is, yeah. We've done a couple of papers about um, not just urban coyotes, but the sort of people that live with them, their human neighbors, and what people make of the coyotes, and what the coyotes, as best we can tell, make of the people. But the background for all of this is that coyotes, of course, historically, were confined to the southwest of the United States, um, sort of arid regions, you know, New Mexico, Arizona, and so on, uh, the prairies as well. Um, and once European colonists had effectively extirpated wolves from the continental United States, um, coyotes were then free to uh, move into those areas um, and it seems to have taken them um, about a century or so, maybe a century and a half, um, migrating through the upper Great Lakes and across the Mississippi um, into the eastern U.S. Um, interesting thing happened along the way in the, in the northern part of the range. Um, coyotes hybridized with remaining wolf populations, um, leading to the emergence about 100 years ago of a larger northeastern coyote, um, sometimes called eastern coyote or the koi wolf. Um, genetic analysis of these animals suggests that their sort of wolf content genetically is anywhere from sort of 9 to maybe 30 or 40 percent, depending on mm. uh, part of the country and the individual animal. 
Um, and yeah, they've effectively, um, you know, they can be found in almost any American city now um, across the continent. Um, they've become a sort of universal meso-predator. Um, and in some cities, they've been established for decades. Um, Chicago, um, cities in California, across the Southwest, of course, where they've been for a long time. Um, where it's true, right? When people sort of say the animals have been here first, if you're in Tucson, you're not wrong about coyotes, right? They've been there first. Um, but here, in, in I think the first animals in Pennsylvania were not recorded until the 1930s, maybe, or the 1940s. Yeah, um, I think you're right on the 30s part. I, I remember yeah. talking to a guy at the Game Commission about this. Yeah, and they've since sort of um, spread across the state and have been in, Pencil- in Philadelphia, apparently, for maybe up to three decades. Um, there's sort of some early <laughs> from the late 80s, early 90s. Um, if Tony were here, he would tell the story of how in the 90s, yeah. he saw one at the, after a concert late at night at, at 6th, at, well, it's a 2nd and Spruce or 6th and Spruce, but... Yeah, I know. And then they're definitely fairly <laughs> common now. They're all over the Wissahickon and the sort of adjoining neighborhoods. Um, they can be found in cemeteries, uh, you know, Roxborough, um, up there in sort of northwest Philadelphia. They're pretty abundant. Um, you can hear them howl almost every night. Um, yeah, so... They've uh, expanded across the continent, um, and people who have historically not had to live with coyotes are now having to figure out how to do that successfully. Um, and uh, um, I mean, I'll, I'll ask what might be a dumb question, but yeah. it, is is why don't people like coyotes more than they do? Because um, well, I like them a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you would think, right? I mean, people, Americans are crazy about dogs, uh, more so than cats. Um, coyotes are basically dogs. Um, but a lot of the potential for conflict between people and coyotes actually revolves around domestic dogs. Um, we have pretty good data about encounters that turn, you know, violent, where there's, um, you know, somebody gets bitten, and the somebody that gets bitten is often your dog. Um, as coyotes tend to view, um, domestic dogs as competition, particularly in the springtime, um, during, you know, denning season when the pups are born or being cared for, just becoming independent. So that's sort of time from March through maybe this time of year, midsummer, um, the potential for sort of coyote dog conflict, um, goes up and then often, you know, the person tries to intervene and protect their dog and then the person gets bitten. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of ambivalence, right? Coyotes are like dogs, but they're not like dogs. Um, I mean, they certainly can't be controlled in the same way that a domestic dog could be controlled by an owner. So they're, in some ways, they're all the things that dogs are not, right? Or, <laughs> the anti-dog. Dog owners look for in their dogs they don't get from a coyote. At least not yet. There's some interesting uh, domestication developments, maybe. Um, oh, okay. You're anticipating another topic, but go ahead. Yeah. So, so the concerns that people have in cities are, um, is this a coyote often, right? So what we still see in Philadelphia a lot, when you sort of track this on social media, uh, somebody posts a picture of a wild canid, and is this a coyote? Is this a fox? Is this a, a runaway dog? What is this thing? Um, so that's still a little bit of a question when people have encounters. They're not quite sure what they're looking at. And then, yeah, there's always the question of pet pet safety, right? To answer your question, foxes, for the most part, will not attack domestic dogs of any size, whereas coyotes occasionally um, will see smaller dogs as an easy meal, 
um, and then sort of carry off a smaller dog and basically eat it. And I think that's clearly where a lot of the anxiety um, comes from because it's not entirely unjustified. I mean, those attacks are... (laughs) Happen a lot. Um, I shouldn't I mean, laugh. It's terrible if you really love that dog and it gets snapped away. No, no, no. It's, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. Um, and they, I've heard that they have a taste for cats as well. Yeah, I mean, they... That's, <laughs> yeah. They, sorry, I, mean, I think have a taste for is a John. I mean, there is, there's some, yeah. some pretty good data from Los Angeles and Coyote and, and Chicago um, where scientists have done sort of long-term diet studies um and for the most part urban coyotes eat wild prey um you know rodents deer whatever roadkill um fruit i mean they're omnivores actually like domestic dogs they'll just eat just about anything and yeah occasionally they'll take a cat um feral cats in particular um but yeah you know if you have a sort of unwary house cat that roams around in coyote territory they're a fair game for sure and there's there's research, there's a classic study, I forget the name of it, but like uh, two scientists, Crooks and Soule, or Crooks and Soule, I never know how to pronounce his last name, um, but they uh, looked at coyotes moving into previously non-coyote territory in um, somewhere in Southern California and uh, found that songbird populations uh, did better after the coyote moved in um, and cats became more scarce. And so right. it was probably not, maybe they killed a few of them, um, but owners of cats who had previously let them outside maybe kept them closer to home because they were worried about the coyote. Um, and then uh, that, I remember this from another study in Chicago when they track coyotes and cats, um, that cats, most or a lot of outdoor cats are smart enough to avoid coyotes. And so coyotes will sort of hang out more in forest or let's say park areas. And then you find the cats sort of avoiding those park areas um, and sticking closer to the the, the urbanized or, or suburbanized spaces. Um, so there's a bit of a fear ecology dynamic in there also. Um, so what is, do we find, I mean, you guys, I mean, and Kate, you've probably seen a lot of this and, you know, Christian, you're out there a lot too. And, and, and um, you know, how do people, feel about foxes. I mean, when we all were keeping chickens on our farms, you know, in some sense, we would have been killing foxes as as competition whenever we could, I guess. Um, But here in the city, we don't keep chickens. So um, when you talk about foxes or or Christian, you're talking to people about your pictures or Kate about the book. Kate, why don't we start with you? Like, what are the, what are attitudes towards foxes like? Oh, they're so cute. (laughs) Oh, babies are so, they are. I mean, they, there, I right now we live in an area that borders the rural part of the Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia area. We're on, there's actually um, the oldest hunt club, fox hunt club in the United States, is right up the road, the Radnor Hunt. Um, and apparently, they used to hunt foxes all around here. They don't do it so much anymore. They just go trotting around and looking fancy. But the um, the foxes here are not they're not as afraid of people as I expected them to be. They're actually quite, we have one that comes to our bird feeders. Well, it comes to, we throw peanuts out the window for the blue jays because they demand it. 
And then if the Blue Jays don't get all the peanuts, we found that there's a fox who comes regularly and eats the peanuts that are left over. And it's adorable. Like you see it and it kind of reminds you of a dog. And they also like have a cat like, you know, uh, way about them, the way they hunt and pounce on things and stalk. Um, and then there's the fluffy tail really helps too, I think. Those are my opinions. And they make funny noises. I don't know. They're, they, they, they're very sweet in a way. If you don't, you know, see a really mangy one, then, then you just feel bad. Christian, how do people, and you, a lot of, and I'll sort of, uh, I'll phrase something, maybe Christian will phrase it better. Um, you know, I think a lot of, when I read Christian's work, a lot of it is looking at how, whether, or how much do humans regard other animals as having a legitimate place in our in our urban spaces or in spaces that we share with them. Um, yeah. and, and so how do foxes fall into that, do you think? So I think people don't have a huge problem with foxes. Um, they're concerned um, about predation of pets and, and chickens, if they, if they do have chickens, right? Um, obviously there's some urban chicken keeping um, where raccoons and foxes become, uh, uh, you know, potentially a problem. You have to, you know, make sure you're uh, um, chickens are under lock and key at night. Um, but yeah, I mean, foxes fall outside of this. This they're not they're not a threat to people. They're not a threat to children. They may theoretically be, you know, a threat to a kitten. Um, but <laughs> you know, I don't know that there's enough interactions between the two species to really create um, a lot of concern. There is. Um, you occasionally see sort of comments where people, you know, people haven't had any kind of exposure to wildlife. Um, people will sort of pose, will ask questions, right? There's a, there's a fox. Should I be concerned? What's going on? Why is it here? So there is, I think, <laughs> a lot of, in a lot of people's minds, there's this idea that, that yes, these animals, you know, foxes, coyotes, raccoons, etc., um, live in cities, but, but really they, they ought to stay in these sort of imagined habitats or habitats as we imagine them, right? So people think that there's a park or there's a cemetery or some other sort of larger green space and that's where the fox or the coyote or the raccoon or skunk or whatever um, belongs. And of course, the animals themselves don't draw those distinctions, right? I mean, they, yeah. they might have a sort of home base in the park, um, but the residential neighborhood next door is also part of the territory. Besides, that's where a lot of the, the food is, right? Um, yeah. Kate mentioned the bird feeder or the, uh, the sort of carelessly um, stored trash or a fruit tree, right? So people have a little bit of difficulty with this idea that um, even though we as humans might divide the city into these separate zones, right? Sort of residential neighborhood for people over here, park for the animals over there. Um, the animals themselves have a lot more, you know, obviously more flexible or a different map of what their typical <laughs> constitutes the territory. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so this sort of dualism, right? Um, of, where nature, non-human nature is sort of confined to these designated areas within cities and when animals leave them, uh, that is sometimes experienced as, as a sort of a form of trespass, right? Or a kind of invasion or violation of a sense of space that a lot of people have. And so over learning the, to, to accept, you know, the, the fox in your backyard as sort of a normal part of what it means to inhabit a city um, is a little bit of a struggle for people, and maybe independently of the species, right? Because people yeah. can also come from opossums or, you know, whatever. 
squirrels. Which are the most benign urban animal you can think of. But yeah. 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 <laughs> but they don't look that cute, right, to a lot of people. The cute factor, I think that makes a difference, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and while coyote puppies are pretty cute, you know, some of yeah. the adults, especially the eastern coyotes, really do look a little bit wolf-like. You know, they're sort of the size of a German shepherd. Um, the males can weigh 60 pounds, 65 pounds maybe. Um, you know, so they're, they're sort of a different kind of league um, than a, a smaller fox or raccoon. Well, then your, your cute factor is actually, I'm going to follow that segue for sure. Um, so <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about um, domestication. Um, I just got a lovely notice from Zoom saying they removed the 40-minute uh, limit. So I don't know that we want to go super long, but we, a little <laughs> bit, it, it takes a little bit of time pressure off. Thank you, Zoom. Um, but um, I'll start, then I'll give more of an introduction to domestication than I, than I originally meant to. So when we talk about domestication, I think when I was a kid, I think a lot of people years ago um, <clears throat> had the idea that like, like domestic dogs are descended from wolves. That meant that at some point our... Um, I don't know, like our, our hunter-gatherer ancestors in Asia or Europe, um, you know, kidnapped a bunch of wolf puppies and, and took them into the, into the tent, you know? Um, and that is, I think, falling out of favor, in favor of the idea that, um, that the animals that we think of as domestic animal, or at least some of the animals we think of as domestic animals, cats and dogs in particular, are animals that um, found it convenient to live around people, got used to living around people, um, uh, especially dogs, came to better, under, evolved to better perceive our intentions and to not be threatening. Um, and probably were basically just eating our trash. Um, and then that's sort of how they got into our settlements. And then, then they got into our homes. It's, it's a lot, much shorter jump than kidnapping wolf puppies, you know? Um, and so, uh, and so that's sort of like the, the old story about dogs and cats. Um, <clears throat> so that's sort of when I'm about to talk about things being like, you'll, we'll hear, you'll see this term domestic syndrome or domestication. That's, that's the process we're thinking of. Um, more broadly, uh, something I'm seeing more and more as research is, is how urban conditions select for features that help animals live in cities. And this almost, this, this should be like, blindingly obvious when we think about evolution that if you have a certain set, like a certain landscape, like urban landscapes with certain kinds of conditions, um, of course, that'll select for different things than what animals evolved without in the countryside um, before or before there were cities. Um, and an example that I like to think of, because it's a reptile and amphibian example, um, there are small lizards called anoles that there's hundreds of species of them um, that live throughout uh, like the Caribbean and parts of Latin America. Um, and in Puerto Rico, uh, there's a kind of a knoll that has been documented in cities, apparently having evolved different or, or, you know, different length feet and legs that are better for climbing on concrete rather than climbing in bushes. Um, and so the thinking is that they're, they're responding to what they have to climb on in cities and the ones that are better at climbing on concrete survive more than the ones that are better for better at climbing on bushes. And so a paper that a friend of a friend shared with me, um, David Hewitt, I should give him a shout out. Uh, Dave Hewitt sent me a paper um, that came out this past June in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. It's got the sexy title called Skull Morphology Diverges Between Urban and Rural Populations of Red Foxes, 
Mirroring Patterns of Domestication and Macroevolution. And it's by K.J. Parsons, Anders Riggs, A.J. Conneth, A.C. Kitchener, S. Harris, and Haoyu Zhu. I don't know how badly I mangled all those names, or some of them at least. Um, but the idea is that they, they were looking at urban foxes in England um, and basically closely analyzing their skulls. And in, they were taking them from a few cities in southern England. And they were finding that the urban ones seemed to, be, seemed to have shorter snouts broader faces. And these are changes that um, we see when animals animals domesticate, like a, a dog versus a wolf, let's say. Smaller, did I mention the smaller brain cases? They're in there too. Now, I, I should have looked up the name of the guy who did it, but there's a study like in the 20th century where a guy, I think at a fox fur farm started with, but like started selecting foxes and breeding foxes for tameness and then found that some physical traits came along with what they thought were just selecting for tameless, but they started having different shapes and heads and stuff. Um, and looking more... Their ears started drooping more. Like they, they, I saw there was a documentary about it. It was really interesting. Yeah, and in this paper, they're talking about skull morphologies, but they're also talking about ear floppiness, which I loved as a term, <laughs> <laughs> a technical term. <laughs> so you get yeah. more ear floppiness. And so it seems like, you know, that, that foxes in, in, in English cities, at least, are starting to, or, or have, have, have uh, they're more careful than I am being in the summary um, in how they phrase this. But I'd say, you know, maybe you're starting to evolve a little differently to look a little bit more like domesticated animals. It seemed like a, a good sort of concept to, to wind up with and chat about. I mean... Um, are, are foxes on their way to being in, in 200 years or a thousand, I don't know, a thousand years is a lot to think about, but a few hundred years, will we have pet foxes like we do have, you know, pet dogs and cats or in a more conservative kind of question, if they're evolving to look more domesticated, will that change how we think about them? What do you think when you think, oh, the foxes are getting cuter? <laughs> how can they get any cuter? Um, I actually, when I was working on my picture book, I had to find reference of foxes in motion. Um, and I was living in West Philly at the time and we didn't have any foxes around. And I found it interesting, one, that the local zoos don't have red foxes because uh -huh. they're just like, that would be like having a raccoon. Like the Philadelphia Zoo does not have a red fox. I think there's one in Delaware that might have one or Norristown might have one, but they're not common in, in zoos because they're not exotic. You know, they're just they've become so common. And the other thing is that, so, so when I was looking for reference, I used YouTube as I often do and looked for people's videos of foxes that they taped, that they recorded in their yards. And I found some very um, charismatic fox pet owners out there. There are states that uh. do allow you to keep foxes and they're, they're bred to be domesticated. Um, and there was one that I was using his, his videos a lot to just get like really good fox in motion playing and whatnot. Very interesting. I, I've like seen the I, sounds they make is very are very interesting. The way they talk to their owners is different. What were you gonna say, Christian? Well, I have two things. Um, I wanna follow up on the, on the fox um, story. Um, Here's a totally, a totally, this may be an entire, a completely apocryph apocryphal story, <laughs> uh, but somebody, a friend of mine in California, 
Malibu, I want to say, tells me that they have coyotes in town who don't howl as much as coyotes would normally do, but instead have chosen to bark. Mm-hmm. And they're, they speculate that this is, I mean, of course, you know, they're dogs. They have the entire sort of vocal range of dogs. Coyotes can bark just like regular dogs. Um, but their impression was, very casual impression, um, that these coyotes would sort of figure out, well, we're in town and uh, people don't seem to be upset by dogs as much as they are by us. So we're going to just make more dog noises. way too intentional to what's going on i'm sure um but it's an interesting um interesting story i think um so if only to emphasize the fact that domestic that domestication is a is a two-way street right um on the foxes there's a there's a sort of notorious famous infamous depending on your on your position about these things um fox family um in uh the uh, Adirondack um, Provincial Park, uh, not Adirondack, um, Algonquin Provincial Park in Ontario, sort of a couple of hours north of Toronto. Is this where you guys go for vacation sometimes? Yeah, so wildlife photographers have been feeding this family of foxes for generations, I want to say, for decades. And, you know, you pull up in your car, the foxes um, start showing up, um, and they start begging the way that dogs will beg for food. They'll, hit, they'll, they'll play the whole sort of register of domestic dogs, you know, the beseeching eyes, the starving little puppy falling down, you know. Um, I have pictures of this. It's amazing. I mean, they, they clearly figured out how to manipulate people into giving them food um, and, and will behave in the way that your domestic dog will behave. I mean, to the point, well, that if you sit there, they'll jump into your lap, you know, and so try to find the food in your pocket. Um, uh, That that eye contact part. Sorry? I was just going to say, point out that eye contact part is something that gets cited a lot when they talk about domestic dogs, domestic features of dogs versus wolves is the sort of... Is the lack of that, yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I think the, the... I don't know. I mean, clearly, yeah, there's a pet trade in foxes. Um, I know people who have pet foxes, and they're not as reliably domesticated as sort of dogs, right? There's, there's a lot of, there's a wider variation. Some individual foxes turn out to be as easy to handle as any domestic dog. Other foxes are a little bit more difficult, uh, a little more easily stressed, or, uh, you know, never figure out the, where they have to pee and go potty, and that sort of stuff um but the potential for domestication is there like if, if you know if people wanted to do this systematically i don't think it would take 100 years it would probably take you know a couple of decades really if you started a breeding program um that could happen quite quickly i think there's a lot of reasons i'd like a time machine um but that's <laughs> i'll add this to the list um to see what what foxes look like in a few human generations would be many fox generations and maybe enough for these traits to set in. Synanthropic organism. I want to thank um, Kate and Christian. Um, Kate has, um, Kate, what, do you have a website where people can go to? How can people find the books that you're doing? Uh, The easiest way is um, go to penguinart.com. It's easier than trying to remember how to spell my name. Um, That's my website and I have links to buying the books on my website. 
but they're available right. on Amazon and everywhere that you can buy books. Awesome. I've got, I'm actually holding the secret life of the red Fox right now. It's wonderful. Um, Thank you. And Christian, any projects to, to mention on the way out? Uh, yeah, we're um, doing at the moment. I'm sort of writing about urban urban horses, um, oh. donkeys. Yeah, in the mm. West, there are a couple places where there are feral horses and feral donkeys that live in urban slash suburban areas. Um, and so that's our next project, trying to figure out how that works. Um, wow. Yeah, uh, in Nevada, a couple places in Nevada rural Nevada that have where their horses and um, the, uh, the town of Marino Valley in the um, sort of inland Southern California, which is the epicenter of the U.S. logistics industry, warehouses, air pollution, tens of thousands <laughs> of trucks, and a legacy herd of about 300 wild burrows that sort of roam over the landscape um, and visit people's backyards. So that is a fascinating geography. Mm. I look forward to reading that, man. That's awesome. Yeah, that's going to be a fun lesson. There's a draft of the paper. I'll send you a copy. Um, but we have been meaning to do the field work um, this summer, and obviously that didn't happen. Um, uh, of course, yeah. Maybe in the fall, but we'll see. Hey, folks, if you liked this episode, please rate us highly on your podcast listening app of choice. Please tell all your friends, family, neighbors, everybody else about us. And feel free to email us with ideas or comments and suggestions at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Tweet at us at herbwildlifecast. And of course, check out all of our wonderful Wildlife Observer Network sibling podcasts.